Yes Girl Podcast presents On the Front Lines, a celebration of Black women who are taking care of our families and theirs too. These beautiful souls are more than essential. They are powerful. We've had the opportunity to talk to some phenomenal women. We're kicking it off with two women whose excellence and commitment to saving lives actually runs in the family. Harvard-educated twin doctors, Dr. Uche and Dr. Oni Blackstock. Their mother was also a Harvard-educated doctor, and they're on the show today to just talk about their journey as doctors and what it's like on the front lines. Dr. Uche Blackstock is the founder of Advancing Health Equity, where she fights to provide equitable care to every patient. And as we know, communities of color are especially taken for granted in healthcare. And as a Black woman, I stand because we need all the advocacy we can get. Dr. Uche is also a board-certified emergency medicine physician on the ground at an emergency care center in Brooklyn, New York. Who else do we have with us today, Charlie? We also have Uche's twin sister, Dr. Oni Blackstock. I love their names. Dr. Oni Blackstock is a primary care physician and assistant commissioner for the New York City Health Department's Bureau of HIV, which as we all know, that's an immunocompromised community. She's been on the front lines treating HIV patients for over 14 years, and now she provides knowledge to keep immunocompromised individuals safe during the coronavirus pandemic, which is so important. These sisters, as you'll hear in their segments, are part of a legacy of Black women physicians and mothers whose primary goal has always been to give the best care possible to our community. We are so excited to kick off this amazing Mother's Day series with Drs. Uche and Oni Blackstock. Corey, I know you and I are so excited to kick off this series because, sister, we have, we're all going through unprecedented times. Unprecedented. It's a lot. And we, you and I, especially when we talk on the phone and we feel our feelings, one of the things, the first thing we always say is thank God for our sisters and brothers on the front lines at these hospitals and the, the doctor's office, the emergency rooms, the paramedics. They are Great. They are saving our lives, our family's lives, and risking their own every day. Every day. Two of my best friends are, are in the medical field. My Jillian's godmother is a registered RN, and my one of my, my first roommate at Hampton is a doctor. So I constantly in our group chats where I'm always saying, How are you two doing? Like yeah. everybody else is good, but how are you two doing? Because they, like you said, they're there dealing with this and helping us all get better. But I think you found us one of the best doctors on the front line right now, Charlie. Seriously. So one of the things I do all day long is just scroll Twitter, looking for Black doctors talking to the community because, you know, we trust them more and they're out there. They're on the front lines. And we discovered Dr. Uche Blackstock, who is a phenomenal woman. She's the founder of Advancing Health Equity and a board-certified emergency medicine physician Harvard Medical School, y'all. And not only is she practicing in the ER right now, okay, and saving lives, she's also then on Twitter giving people personal advice about the medical situations they have going on in their families, personalized advice. And she's a mom herself. Welcome, Dr. Blackstock. And we already are just like, sister, thank you. First, let's just say yes. Thank you. First and foremost, thank you thank so much. You. Thank you for everything that you thank do. Thank you for having me. 
excited to be here. The reason we are doing this series is because it's Mother's Day and every year, you know, we mm. celebrate moms for being incredible moms. But you and moms like you right now aren't just being mothers in your own family. You're taking care of our family, the yeah. world. Mm -hmm. There isn't enough gratitude to throw your way. I don't even know where we begin. But we have to say thank you. And just what has that been like for you? What's a typical day right now in the pandemic like for you? Yeah. Who you are? Yeah, I mean, definitely, as you, you mentioned earlier, we are in unprecedented times. And, you know, I've been practicing for almost 15 years. And it's, I've never had this experience before. And even some of my colleagues who've been practicing for 35 years, they also agree, we've never seen anything um, like this. Just the, the, the level of, of sickness in people, the number of patients coming in, sort of just overwhelming, overwhelming the system, really, and us just trying to do our best to, to care for them and, and do right by them and their families. Now, did you always want to be a doctor? I mean, because I, I, I heard that you're a twin. Yeah, the interesting story is that our mom was a physician. And so our mom is the original Dr. Blackstock. And so uh, she was the first in her family to finish college. She actually um, had a professor at Brooklyn College, chemistry professor, who encouraged her to apply to medical school. She did. She got into all of her medical schools. She went to Harvard Med School. And so we are actually the first Black mother-daughter legacy from Harvard Medical School. Our mom came yeah. back to, to Brooklyn, New York, where she was raised and practiced here for many, many years. And we actually, we lost her when we were 19 years old. We were sophomores at Harvard undergrad and we lost her to leukemia. She was only 47 years old, but she's obviously made a huge, huge impact on us. So that's why this is even more special that this is for Mother's Day, because uh, when you talk to my sister, she will tell you our mother was the most amazing mother. So even though we only had her for 19 years, we were blessed, absolutely blessed for 19 years. When people meet us, they meet they meet her, her her essence, her positivity, her commitment to the community. Um, they meet all of that when they meet us. Oh my gosh, she the sounds amazing. The best of her is in you both. The best yeah. of her. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. We we miss her terribly. But we learn how to be uh, mothers from her, right? So we learn from the best. So we try to <laughs> we try to be good mothers <laughs> to our kids. You know, you know, even though you know we have different different types of stress today, especially you know in this pandemic. This is you know, as I mentioned, something that we've never seen before. What did she teach you about being a, a doctor or being a, a good doctor? So it, that's a, such a great question. And so, and one thing that she taught me was that this work that we do it has to come from the heart. It has to be a calling uh, because we know the journey of being a physician is not an easy one, you know, starting all the way in, in college when you're pre-med. And so you commit a lot of time and energy and effort to that whole process of becoming a physician. And so you really have to be all in. It can't be something that you're only half in. Like, I think I kind of want to do this. Your heart has to be in it. And then to have um, the honor and privilege of caring for people, right? and people's family members. That's something that we have to take very seriously. And that's what I learned from my mom. But I also learned from her that as a mother, you have to take care of yourself first, yeah. right? And, and, and that's how you can be the best mother, the best partner, the best physician. So even when I was a little girl, she would say, you have to make time, make time to meditate, 
make time to get a massage, make time to get your nails done, just make time to, to be grounded. Even when we were like 11, 12 years old, she would tell us this. At the time, I didn't know what she was talking about. Now I get it. How are you finding time to do that now with everything that's happening? <laughs> I mean, self-care? I know. I honestly, I was telling someone recently, I feel like I'm back in kind of maternity leave or when my kids were really small because it's hard to get things done during the day. So I'm either up or I'm up early or I'm up after they go to bed. And and that's when I have the time. So I get up early. I try, I try to work out every morning, whether it's doing exercises at home or I go for a run. because so I picked up running again since the gyms are closed. And then in the evenings, I'll try to read a book, watch a favorite television show or do some meditation just when I have some, some time to myself. So that's when I've been, I've been trying to make the most of this crazy new, new abnormal that we're in. Um, and, and, and it's challenging. It's not, you know, I think it's going to take a, a while to kind of figure out, to get into a routine, um, but I'm doing my best. Right now, I know, like you said, in the ER, it's just, you have a lot of patients. Our community is disproportionately suffering, right? Let's be right. honest. And you being a mother and a nurturer and also an ER physician, that must be so emotionally taxing. What has it that been like for you? Yeah, it is. And, and you know, I understand this is a scary time. I'm scared. I've never been scared to go to work before. I'm scared because I'm scared of contracting the virus. I'm scared of bringing it home to my family. So I understand uh, my patients' fears, you know, whether they come in and they actually have it or they don't. And so I've found that I'm spending a lot of time counseling people, educating people, and having to remind myself that patients now, they need a little bit of extra time. You know, even though we're super stressed and we have a lot of patients to see that sometimes they just need to be reassured. And so I've been trying to do that. And it, and that can be draining too, because when you're comforting everybody, but you also need comforting yourself, you know, where does that, where does that leave you? And so I feel like I've been blessed that I've had a lot of loved ones who've been checking in on me. I even get every now and then I've been getting care packages from people. I don't even know who they are. That's beautiful. <laughs> uh, it, yes. So um, it's, it's nice because I've always been in that position of being the carer, being the nurturer, being the person who is always looking out for other people. And so, and I sometimes have had a hard time of, to telling people what I need. Uh, but I've been trying to, to, to do that more often because really that's, you can't really expect other people to know what you need. They may have an idea, but sometimes you have to tell people how they, how they should help manage you or help support you. Oh yes. You have to tell people how to treat you in every yes. situation. Yeah. And, and that's even like your partner, your close family members, uh, you know, anyone that means anything to you. You have to tell them like, or even like my father, <laughs> my father, you know, uh, sometimes I have to tell him that's not really what I want to hear right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Right, right, now, too. yeah right now, I just need you just, just to listen. Right. Yeah. No, I need to feel my feelings, Corey. And I always say that. Feel exactly. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Blackstar, one of the reasons you came on our radar is because you posted something that was really beautiful, and I want to read it back to you. You said, I'm beginning to see some signs of hope. 
Waiting rooms are less full, fewer sick patients. I was able to take a breath today, literally and figuratively, at my workstation because our patient volumes are down. I spent more time with patients and felt less rushed like it used to be. So what were you, what was happening when you were posting this and how are things going right now? Yeah, you know, so it's interesting because, you know, I'm here in New York City. It's the epicenter of the pandemic. So we reached our peak in terms of number of cases much earlier than the rest of the country. And so what we're seeing is that, um, you know, our shelter in place orders, all that is working. And so we're seeing fewer cases. And so definitely where I am, I had a chance to take, I mean, literally our volume like cut in half in terms of the number of patients we were seeing. And so I actually had a chance to grieve and to not rush when I saw patients because I wasn't seeing so many of them. And it really just gave me an opportunity to reflect. So on the other side, though, what we're seeing, though, is that a lot of the patients that were admitted to the hospital are and, and have been on ventilators in the ICU are now passing away. And I just found out this morning about um, uh, two of my colleagues. One was a charge nurse who's been working in our ER for 30 years where I trained in Brooklyn. And then another was an ICU doctor, also practicing for more than 30 years, committed to the community, both contracted uh, COVID-19 and passed away. So, you know, you know, while we see, while there is hope, there also are days where it's, you know, that are very, very painful. Um, but I'm hoping that in the long run, we'll see more of those hopeful days on the horizon for us. Why is it disproportionately affecting our community so much? Mm-hmm. You being a Black woman and an ER physician, being on the front line, seeing it. Can you be as specific as possible? Why us? Sure. And a lot of different reasons. But the one phrase is structural racism. You know, um, you know, we've had practices and policies in this country that have left our communities, black communities, the most vulnerable. So we carry the highest chronic disease burden. We have asthma, diabetes, high blood pressure. These are all medical problems that actually predispose us to suffering the more serious complications of COVID-19. We are more likely to be essential workers. So we're more likely to still have to work. We're on the front lines, so to speak, right? We're exposed to the public. We're exposed to opportunities to contract uh, the virus. And then, you know, the hospitals in our areas um, are not necessarily always resourced well or equipped to take care of us the best way that we can. And finally, there's provider bias. So we know that there is what we call implicit bias, which is not something that is benign or is insignificant. We know that it is has been implicated in healthcare disparities, but we see that physicians, clinicians routinely prefer and listen to white patients over black patients, right? And so when you put all of those factors together, it's almost this pandemic is almost the perfect storm for our communities being absolutely devastated uh, by this virus. How can we be better advocates right now for ourselves? I, I saw that you tweeted to DeRay about, you know, if someone right. has asthma, their right. blood level, their blood oxygen level needs to be maybe checked before the, the shortness right. of that. Right, right, right. you can do? Yeah, no, so, so what I will say is this, that there are immense structural barriers that are preventing our communities from reaching our highest health potential, right? And, and, and so there, those are barriers that, 
you know, government officials, public health officials need to deal with. And in terms of what we can do as individuals is educate ourselves as much as possible about this virus. Realize that, you know, these, you know, the, these social media memes that we've been seeing about 5G causing, causing yeah. this. I don't know if you've heard about like 5G yeah, um, cell phone have. signal has been implicated in this. You know, knowing that really it is our communities that are going to be the ones that are most harshly impacted. So while this idea of physical distancing for some people is very easy and maybe in our in our areas, you know, many of us are living together. We can try just to do our best, washing our hands, wearing masks at home. You know, I, I, I do know that a lot of community based organizations are trying to help get the message out in terms of education and outreach to our communities and trying to go door to door. Um, but I will say the burden is on government and public health officials to make sure that our communities are receiving the best outreach and care possible. So I hate to go back there, but when you think about the losses, I yeah. mean, how do you process the losses while fighting an ongoing, an ongoing battle with such bravery? Like where, where do you source that from? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> No, it's somewhere in here. I do think that there is some part of medical training where, you know, you just, you have the the goal is just to take care of your patients, right? And so you you, you try to keep doing your best. And so even before this, when, you know, I would be in the emergency department and we had someone come in and they're in cardiac arrest, their heart stops, right? You know, we're with them for an hour. They may not make it. You know, we're doing CPR. We're giving them epinephrine. And then after that, I still have five or six other patients I have to see after that, right? And so you almost learn how to compartmentalize. I'm not saying that that's that's a good thing, but it is necessary to keep doing your job. But one thing that we've been talking more about in the physician space is really this idea of that taking away the stigma, the stigma away from being able to talk about these sort of these painful experiences that you have with your patients and normalizing that because that's so important to helping us deal with with the, the crisis that we're going through right now. Absolutely. And being that you had such an incredible mother who really helped shape your path mm-hmm. and your sisters, I know, you know, mothers and daughters have incredible conversations with something that you learn from your mother that you take with you and hold with you every day that has shaped the woman that you are? Oh, that's such a great question. You know, we had so many really wonderful conversations. um, And even when she was sick and we knew that we were going to lose her. um, One thing that she did tell me (laughs) is that she told me that when you have children, do not treat your sons and daughters differently. You have the Mm -hmm. same um, expectations for them, you know, love them the same don't don't think that you know boys can do certain things that girls can't do and so it's just just love up on your children and so for me the work that I do I do it for my kids not just taking care of patients but my organization advancing health equity to address healthcare disparities um, is really to make a better world for my children so that's what that's one way that I show my love for them by doing doing this work that's beautiful. That is beautiful. That is the perfect way to do it. I try to do that. I mean, I only have one uh, daughter, but I try to be mindful of not saying like, oh, that's a, you know, it's a girl color. That's a girl toy. Right. Like, it's funny as much as I, you know, I do this work, I still have like this old school mentality sometimes, but it's a conversation you must have. It, yeah. And it's hard not to, because that's how we're socialized. Right. But I think that we're in a different time now where we can let our children be themselves in a lot of different ways. 
Yeah, yeah. It almost helps that her dad is constantly like, she's in too much pink. <laughs> and I'm like, that's right. That's right. It is too much. Get some right. in there. Let's get some Navy. I'm sorry, Charlie. You were going to say no, something. No, Dr. Blastop, I'm curious with your mother having been a doctor, you and your sister being doctors, would you want your children to also go into medicine? Or <laughs> do, you, do you really want to know the answer? I do. Okay. I do. Okay. Legacy. Um, so, right? so fully, fully transparent. Um, I would be, if, if they wanted to do something like very creative, I would be very excited. I really, I really would be. Um, I think that, you know, the, I, being a physician now, it's very different than being a physician 20, 30 years ago because of insurance companies, because of paperwork, because of this pressure to see patients very quickly. It's really taken away a lot of the, the personal feel out of it. And so while I think you can do wonderful things as a physician, there are a lot of other jobs that you can have in your life where you can help other people. So that's, so that's what I will say. And I also miss being able to use my creativity, which is actually one reason why I started my company, because, you know, sometimes, you know, going to work as a physician, you don't always get to use your creativity. And so that's why I say if my kids wanted to, they wanted to be a writer or an artist, I would fully support them as long as they can support themselves. That's, that's all that matters. And they're happy. I get that. I get that. And thank you for your honesty, because I'm, I'm sure <laughs> a lot of doctors get that question. Before we wrap up, uh, Dr. Black, I want to ask you, because Charlie and I, you know, as we've been developing this series, we've been also hit with the idea of like, like it's kind of like we mentioned, like some people think it's like, oh, 5G signals or whatever. What do you say to people, especially our community who are still in doubt that this is happening, that this uh, virus can infect you? And, and if you're not careful and if you're not able to take care of yourself, or I could get the proper treatment, you could die. What do you say to people who are still believing this is a conspiracy right. or this is a hoax or this it's is like this, the flu or the, right, right. Or the oh, no. whatever? Well, yeah, well, well, I'll tell them it's about 20 times worse than the flu, if that. And I'll, and I'll also tell them I've never seen in 15 years what I'm seeing right now in terms of how sick patients are getting with, the, with, this, with this virus. And that also it's impacting our communities the most. Like if you look at the numbers coming out of almost every major city with a sizable black population, it's disproportionately affecting us. And so these cases and the deaths that we're seeing are very, very real. And that's what I really try to communicate on my social media on Twitter. Cause I really try to speak to our people and our communities about this because we're, we're the ones that are being most significantly impacted by COVID-19. And lastly, I think what we're all constantly checking, right, Corey, Twitter for and everything is like, we want information, but we also want hope. Yeah. Um, so do you have a message of hope yes. of for all of us out here who are staying home, but a little anxious and trying to do our part, but not necessarily feeling like it's working fast enough? No, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing in New York already, our numbers are going down in terms of cases. And so staying home is saving lives. And so while it may not seem like it's working now, wherever you are, whatever city you are in right now, but in the long term, it's going to work. So while it may be a little bit painful for a few weeks to months, that it's all going to be worth it in the end. Dr. Blackstock, thank you so much. From our heart <laughs> to you and every mom like you right now, literally on the front lines, we love you, we appreciate you, and we cannot thank you enough. Thank for you for having me. For us. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you so much.
While Dr. Uche serves in the emergency rooms, Dr. Oni serves from her position of power, advocating for the most immunocompromised communities, those living with HIV and AIDS. As we continue our conversation about our heroes on the front line, Black moms on the front line, I know you and I have been thinking a lot about the immunocompromised community. Yes, yes. They, I think you were telling me before as we were prepping for this interview with this amazing doctor we're about to talk to that they are some of the most compromised people um, right now dealing with if they are infected with COVID-19. And try not to catch um, coronavirus, you know, if there's autoimmune disorders, people who are HIV positive, people who have AIDS, they're really scared. And we are saluting the doctors on the front lines and the moms on the front lines who are taking care of them, which leads me to today's guest, Dr. Oni Blackstock, MD. She's the Assistant Commissioner at the Bureau of HIV at the New York City Health Department. Dr. Oni, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Corey. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for taking time out because I know right now, well, we know that time is very precious to you. Um, and the work that you do. Yes, it is hectic. It's very busy right now, but I appreciate the time to um, have community with the two of you. And we've been opening these conversations with a straight up thank you so much. Being on the front lines, taking care of our families and your own, there isn't enough gratitude that we could offer. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's, I think it's a it's a privilege to do the type of work that I do. And I'm also part of the health department's, um, New York City Health Department's response to the pandemic. So a lot of my time has been devoted to that. And we've now, been working the hardest here, right, Corey? I mean, the New York is just the epicenter still. Yes, no, totally. We've been, yes, impacted in ways that we never imagined. Um, and so it's been really a privilege and very exciting and scary sometimes also just to be part of this large response to taking care of our city and protecting New Yorkers. Now, Dr. Blackstock, your job sounds really huge and really complicated. So for our listeners, can you talk a little bit about what that means in your day to day and how had how has it changed since the pandemic? OK, so I'm a primary care doctor, so that means I take care of adults. Um, I'm an HIV specialist, so many of my patients are living with HIV. I see patients once a week um, at Harlem Hospital's um, HIV clinic, and then I spend the rest of my days at the New York City Health Department, where I oversee the Bureau of HIV, and we're responsible for uh, the city's response to ending the HIV epidemic. So we do a lot of stuff. Good job. (laughs) A lot of stuff. Um, one of the main things we do is support a lot of different clinics and community-based organizations um, in providing HIV prevention and treatment services to um, New Yorkers throughout the city. How has your day-to-day changed with the yeah. pandemic? Because right. I imagine that community being most at risk, it has right. to take a lot of precautions. So clinic-wise, I've been really fortunate because I've been able to do televisits with all my patients. And I check in on them. I say, how are you doing? And we see if they need any refills. The main thing is making sure that people, you know, stay home if they can. Um, And, you know, for my patients who are living with HIV, really weighing, like, the risks and benefits. Like, is it worthwhile to come out and get your labs checked? Or can this wait? Can we hold up another month or two and see how things go? Um, So I'm always sort of thinking about them and making sure that they stay protected. Um, one thing that was really sweet, one of my patients who has been through so much over the past year, he like called me and was like, I just want to check in and see how you're doing. And I was like, thank you so much. And this man had been through so much. Um, but I think we had developed such a rapport. He was like, I just want to make sure you're okay and staying safe. And I really appreciated that. 
Um, my work at the New York City Health Department, um, usually I am in meetings like all day. And actually some of my work has shifted to um, work, working to address the, the, um, the COVID pandemic. So we have our full-time jobs, um, in the health department, and then we get activated, which means that we also then have to be part of this, our health department's response. And so the work I'm doing is focused on guidance to congregate settings like homeless shelters, supportive housing, and what um, those types of settings can do to um, keep uh, their residents safe if there is an outbreak, if someone becomes sick. So that's some of the work that I'm involved in. And these are the communities our hearts have been going out to the most, the homeless community as well. Yeah. Yes. How can you stay at home when you don't have a home? I mean, exactly. I keep saying that and I'm just- And wash your hands and do all the things that are very basic, but when you, to your point, Charlie, when you don't have a home. Exactly. No, I think, um, right, it's just sort of like peeling the layers off is what this pandemic has done. And so like those people and communities um, that are already very vulnerable are made even more vulnerable by what's going on. Now, this work that you do, like I said before, is really big. So what was the moment that you knew this specific kind of job is what was in your soul to do in your spirit? Yeah. So this will probably sound similar to my sister, Uche. Um, but, you know, we, my, my mother um, played you know, a huge role in, in, in just my life and my career path. Um, and so I'm sure she also shared with you, our mom um, was you know, grew up, on, grew up on welfare, um, in substantial poverty, did not have a lot of supports the way that we had. Um, and she had a really wonderful professor in college who encouraged her to, her and a number of other minority students to apply to medical school. And then she ended up going to Harvard Medical School and um, becoming a nephrologist and um, geriatrician and spending like most of her career in central Brooklyn and so growing up, my sister and I would, you know, go to the, go visit her at work. We just hang out. We just see like how much she really enjoyed what she did. And I think also seeing the way in which she married um, medicine to like community service and social justice. So um, just seeing the way that those intersected and the way that as physicians we can be advocates for our communities was was really important. I think she really exemplified that. Um, so sort of, you know, I don't actually, sorry, my, our mom died when we were in college, um, but she did leave a note for us saying, and my sister may have mentioned that she left a note under her mattress, which we found. She died when we were in college. Um, and the note said, you know, take care of each other, take care of your father. And she's like, and please make sure you go to medical school. So um, we, we couldn't disappoint her. Um, yeah. So we went on to medical school and I actually spent the last 10 years before I joined the health department two and a half years ago doing academic research, which is like applying for a lot of different grants, applying to the CDC, National Institutes of Health. And that was really exciting. Um, but it's also like really challenging because your livelihood is really dependent on whether you get these grants or not. Um, and then literally got an email from a friend of mine who was like, Oni, you need to apply for this job at the New York City Health Department. They need people like you in this role. And I was like, no, I'm not. All these are all the reasons I'm not qualified. And she was like, girl, apply. Um, yeah. So I applied and then made it through all these different rounds of interviews and ultimately was like being interviewed by the commissioner of health um, and got the, got the position. Um, it's been a very rewarding job. It's also been really challenging working for government in lots of different ways, but um, Everyone who's there is really committed to like the well-being of New Yorkers. So that's been really, really wonderful. Thinking about the letter from your mom, chills, because you, you yeah. know, you said take care of each other, 
take care of your father, be a doctor. And now here we are in 2020 and you're taking, helping to take care of the world. You know, that that must, what does that whole sort of 360 moment feel like for you as a- And you're a mom as well. Yes, I'm a mom. mom. Yes, I'm a mom, I have a seven-year-old. And he he, um, splits his time back and forth between myself and his dad's place, my place and his dad's place. So one week, one week. So one week when he's with me, it's like really intense and I'm trying to like juggle juggle everything and do the crisis homeschooling and be on these calls. And then when he's at his dad's, I get to do things like this. Um, it's wonderful to come, um, yeah, to come full circle. Um, I, I do think though, like as, as much of a privilege as it is to be a physician, um, I am looking to like, think, I'm thinking about my next, the next chapter of my life. And mm-hmm. I think this pandemic for a lot of people have a lot, has allowed time for re- some reflection if we're fortunate oh, yeah. and have the privilege to do so. Um, and so I'm thinking about, you know, what really like nourishes me? What am I get really excited about? Um, and where can I be in a role where like I, I get to kind of do what I want to do and sort of speak on things that I want to speak on and not have so many constraints? I'm thinking about the just jumping to your active Twitter, social media. And I love that yeah. you're constantly putting out advice. And one thing that you put out is like how to, and let me jump into Charlie's shoes right now because she is our yeah. love guru. Yeah. Um, but like people are concerned about having sex now during yeah. this time, during, a, 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 you know, when this disease is going around or a virus is going around, that's highly spreadable. What do you say to people who are, you know, looking to scratch an itch, I guess? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's t- totally part of being human beings. And, you know, sexual health is a really important aspect of overall health. Um, so we want to make sure that people are able to do that in a way that is safe for them and safe for the community. So we were getting a lot of um, questions around sex and in the age of COVID-19 um, from community members. And, you know, our team put out this uh, guidance that went literally went viral, no pun intended. Um, and, and really just saying that, you know, first and foremost, you are your safest sex partner. Mm-hmm. And then after that, uh, a consenting adult who lives with you. And then if you're going to have sex um, with people outside of your household, really try to limit the number. And it's really about just making sure, you know, the more people you have, the more the, the more potential risk there is to um, pass something on to someone else. Um, and we said, you know, kissing, it obviously really easily spreads COVID-19, the other types of sexual activity that can spread um, COVID-19. And just because it's just the closeness that people get when they are being intimate. So we really encourage folks to think about virtual platforms where they, they and their partners can stay safe, you know, um, like video chats, sexting, things like that. Um, I know I, I was just on a, um, a IG live last night about this. And I know someone was talking about all these amazing virtual date sets they've had, like during the wow. time. Okay. And we're saying that like, they've been having like these really long, interesting conversations. This is a, a woman who was talking about like guys that she was dating. And she was like, these men can talk and they can have good conversation. It may take like a pandemic, but like they can, <laughs> yeah. they can so really the engage. Out, the physical intimacy off the table. Right, right, right. Like and you, right, emotional intimacy. Right, no, exactly. And get that deep conversation going. So yeah, yeah, we're all for it. And we're all for people doing it in the way that's um, as safe as, as possible. Well, we love seeing, like Corey is saying, we love seeing doctors like you and your sister using Twitter as a tool to get information to the community because we're all so hungry for it. So thank you for that, first and foremost. Yes, yes. And I think it's so interesting. I think people talk about like 
um, Black Twitter and um, just being sort of like the voice powerful. of Black America and how powerful it is and how it can amplify. And I think we, as Black women, sometimes there are a lot of different um, forces that are keeping us, trying to keep us in place and so that our voices can't be heard. And I think for my sister and myself, like we've sort of found, oh wow, like Twitter really allows us to get our thoughts out there. So it's interesting, I get, get a lot of inquiries from Twitter, not from, you know what I mean? Because that's the, really the place where I'm able to like share what my thoughts are really, really widely. Um, so that's been really exciting. And I, I say that because like we're listening to doctors right now more than ever, like, you know, yeah. in the time where we were following celebrities and yes. all of that. And now it's like, what are the doctors saying? And in that vein, what advice do you have to someone who may be HIV positive yeah. who's at home, you know, scared, trying to stay he- healthy and safe? and avoid getting COVID-19, what yeah. would you go to that part of the immunocompromised people in general in yeah. the black community? What's your message? Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously this is a time of a lot of uncertainty and we're learning a lot about the virus. And so I know among people living with HIV, you've gotten a lot of questions about whether having HIV in and of itself puts people at greater risk for getting COVID-19 and having like severe complications from it. Um, And so we actually don't know yet whether HIV itself is um, a risk factor, Um, but we do know that when people do have weakened immune systems, so most people living with HIV are actually doing really well um, as long as people are taking their medications and they have the support they need. Um, Some folks who may be struggling um, might not be able to take their medications as prescribed and so might have more weakened immune systems. And so we just tell it just really for everyone to try to, if, if you have a home, a safe home and warm home and clean home to stay in, stay there, shelter in place, um, and really only go out for essential items. Um, even for telehealth, if you can take advantage of that with your medical provider to do that, um, hand hygiene for everyone, and also making sure that you have an adequate supply of medication. Um, so here in New York State, our Medicaid and AIDS Drugs Assistance Program has allowed people to get like 60 to 90 days of medication, which is really great. So people don't have to go out every month um, to get their medication or see if your pharmacy has home delivery so that you don't have to go outside. Um, but we're hoping to get more information about the intersection of COVID-19 and HIV so that we can keep um, folks who are living with HIV and the people who take care of them as informed as possible. You know, Dr. Oni, when you're talking about things, I'm thinking like you have such a burden. So what do you do when you're able to get off, log off the computer? I know you're working from home and, you know, when you have to have a lot of meetings, but how do you like disconnect from the weight of the world? Um, Yeah. So it's so interesting. It's so interesting the way the universe works. Before all this started here in the United States, I had actually started making a commitment to myself to, to meditate every day. So I do um, this Liberate app. I don't know if you all have heard of it. It's for um, mm. Black, Indigenous, people of color. It's amazing. It's um, it's really great. Um, lots of different people of color. They're Black folk. Um, and a lot of their guided meditations. But I also find it like really hard just to meditate when there's like complete silence. But they're guided meditations on a range of topics. It could be from mindfulness to microaggressions. And then there are also talks. Um, and interesting, from that app, I learned about um, this Buddhist Lama teacher, this black queer guy named Lama Rod Owens. And on his Instagram every day, he does a 15 minute short, it's called a Dharma talk where he'll talk on a topic, loneliness, compassion, whatever it is. And then he'll do a meditation. So I have, so I always do his um, meditations every day. 
I do yoga every day, like 20, 25 minutes off of YouTube. And I've just been just doing a lot of sort of reading and trying to um, ground myself and and stay present um, because there is so much uncertainty. We don't know what the future holds. And it's so funny. We, we always think that we can, people are like, oh no, I was planning to do this and I was supposed to do that. But like, no, all of that was uncertain too. Like we, we have no control over the future. We only know about now and, and the present moment. And so have just been really trying to center myself and ground myself and now using some of those contemplative practices and movement practices. I love that you found a way to find peace in all the chaos, you know, and that's beautiful. What advice do you have to other moms on the front line? Lama Rod Owens is really great. He shared this quote. The basic idea is it's, it's um it's some um, drink as you pour. So like, you know, make before you can fill up somebody's cup, you need to make sure that your cup is full. Mm. So um, even if it means, and this can be hard, waking up a little bit earlier before your little one. That's what I do because I'm like, I don't want him interrupting my meditation. So I'll be like, I know what time he usually wakes up. So I'll like try to wake up like 15 minutes beforehand so I can just have them some of that quiet time. So just where you can, and I know it may not be possible every day, but even taking like a minute to like deep breathe or even three breaths can help ground you. Or if you're standing, just feeling the ground beneath you and the way that earth supports you and how connected we are to the earth. And just remembering that, that we're always supported and loved. Um, yeah, just trying to just squeeze in some of those little things I think can make a big difference. Um, because when you are in those periods of like feeling really stressed and overwhelmed, you can like go back to those practices. Wow. Before we leave with you, because you've been giving us so much, we want to talk a little bit more about what is your advice to those people in marginalized communities who are trying to advocate for themselves with limited resources and information? What do you say right. to, to them? I think about this a lot when people, Black people in particular, when we have to go to a medical provider and we hear a lot about, you know, people showing up with symptoms of COVID-19 and not being able to get tested or whatever it is. So I think, you know, particularly if, if for folks who are going to see a healthcare provider, um, if you can like write down bullet bullets and bullets, like everything that you, whatever you're experiencing, how long it's been, just like a lot of details and specificity. So you can have that really at the ready. Um, also bringing like a, a peer or, or a family member or someone with you who can also advocate for you is really important. And then if you're also like seeking care and you're unhappy with the care you're getting, you can try to see another provider. Um, you're not, hopefully you're not stuck with the, that one provider and to really consider getting um, second opinions. And I think just like, I think as Black people, as a community, we've always relied on each other. Like we are, um, you know, I think sort of the dominant culture is a very individualistic culture, um, but our cultures have always been relational cultures where we really rely on each other and community. Um, so as much as people are feeling isolated now to remember to as to the extent that you can stay connected. And if you aren't hearing from folks, reach out to them. It, it's so important um, during these times. So just relay relying on those those networks and supports that we have we have always had, but probably need more so now. I have to say you and your sister have such a calming and relaxing presence, right, Corey? Yeah. <laughs> and I appreciate that. And I, I it makes me just I want to ask you. How do you manage fear? Because I think a lot of us are feeling more fear than we've ever felt before. And most of us don't have to go out and right. patients yeah. or, you know, be on the front line, excuse me, and help others. How are you, how do you manage fear and process fear and get back to the place that you're at? Because I think we all need 
to learn how to do that, whether we're on the front lines yeah. or not, but you all have to do it every day. No, it's so, it, no, it is really hard. Um, I think it's so funny. I just to say that I have like experience and suffered from like anxiety and depression. So just, just to say, you know, and um, these things are not me, but they're things that I've experienced. Uh, and I have to say meditation and mindful practice, mindfulness has been really, really important to keeping me grounded. And cause I think the fear is of like the anticipation of what could happen, but there are a million different possibilities, right. Of what, what, what could happen. Like we never knew that our future held a pandemic or maybe some of us did, but many of us did not. Um, so again, just, um, trying to stay in the present moment has helped me to not think about and get caught up in, oh no, what does the future hold and all of that uncertainty. And I think just doing what you can do, what that's within your control. Like I was talking to my sister, cause I know she was, you know, she was, she sees patients several days a week at her, at her urgent care um, center. And I said, you know, they're, they're the only, just, you can only do what you can do. You can put on your PPE, you know, do your hand hygiene. Those are the things that you have control of, over. I think you've seen like those memes, like this is like your sphere of control. These yeah. are things you can control, like trying to keep yourself safe, you know, doing all your hand hygiene, social distancing. And then there's like, a, there are tons of other things that we have no control of, of and, and have to like be okay. Thank you so much for that. Oh, what, is something, what are some things you've been teaching uh, your son during this time? Like how are you managing? I know. It's so funny because so he's in first grade and he's so cute. He's always like, he's always thought school was boring. He's like, Mommy, school is so boring. And I'm like, it, it, might, it might be, um, but you still got to go. Um, but, you know, one thing that I have, have, I have worked on with is um, just so in finding self-compassion for myself, um, having extending compassion to him. So like when he's melting down, and it's having a hard time, or, or he actually finds all the Zoom sessions really boring with his class. Before I'd be like, you need to get in that chair. <laughs> I'd be like that, I was like, get in that chair. And now I'm just like, I get it. It's like super boring. It's not the same as being with your friends. And I'll, I'll, I was like, okay, just do what you wanna do. And I'll literally like, I need to go do my work. You decide what you wanna do. And I understand it's really hard. And he like will eventually like come to the chair and sit down and participate, whatever. But I've just tried to like, just remember like he's just seven years old. He is going through something that's, you know, unimaginable, like all of, all of our children are dealing with and to extend compassion to him and to, to understand what it must be like to be a seven-year-old. We have first grader, not able to go to school or see your friends. Um, so I think that has helped a lot. And he, had a, he was having a tantrum the other day and I think if it had been before this, I would have been like, what is your problem? What is wrong? And I, and I just like held him and I said, I know you feel really frustrated. I know you feel really frustrated. You feel really angry. And I like literally held him and we just were deep breathing together. And he was like, he calmed down and he ran off to play. He was like, fine. So I just think sometimes Beautiful. like, it's just finding like sort of the deep wells inside of you. Like, okay, I have, I, you know, once your cup is full, then you can take care of other people better. I love that you're sharing that because I too have a, uh, I have a 10 year old, yes. but we do have to really be mindful of the, how they're processing things. Yes. Like, yes. As I'm not saying we do this. I mean, I understand you telling us that you, you meditate, I drink wine, yes, probably I Thursday, you know, <laughs> so we have a way to kind of decompress, <laughs> but for the, for kids, they, you know, they may not know what to, to grab onto right away yes. that will just make them feel certain or calm, you know? And exactly, and exactly. And the thing is, and I think we can also learn from them too, um, because they actually, 
are the best at staying in the current moment in the present. They're not, they don't, they're not, most of the time they're not worrying about what's happening next week or two weeks from now. I think as they get older, they probably get more of that worry, but they're like just playing when they're playing with their toys or just thinking about their toys, not thinking about anything else. What am I going to eat later? Whatever, whatever. So I try to like, I actually have like a renewed um, sort of amaze, sense of amazement um, or awe for my child. Cause I'm like, Oh my goodness. They're like things I can learn from him too. Yeah. yeah. My daughter constantly is telling me, um, when are you going to take a day off? Because I feel like since we've been working from home, yes. and I talk about, we, I feel like I work every day. Yes. And she's like, she's we the one so that when can you take a day off? And I was yeah. like, oh, she's right. When I do need to just take it down. So what I do yeah. now, I mean, this is something small. I literally shut down the computers of yes. like leaving it idle so I can easily, you know. Yes. So for me to log back in takes like a lot of steps. Yes. So I'm like, no, I'm shutting down today. Right, exactly. No, that's so true. And I should just say, when he left last week to stay with his dad for a week, I, I did an order on Drizzly of, of wine. Hello. So literally he left and the wine arrived. So I'm yeah, with yeah. you on the wine. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Oni, we can't thank you enough for your time, your wisdom, and for the work that you are doing every day. So from our hearts to yours, thank you. We appreciate you. You are our hero. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure speaking to you both. We are so thankful to our guests, Dr. Uche Blackstock and Dr. Oni Blackstock. We see you and we appreciate all that you do. Happy Mother's Day. To keep up with these amazing women and all of their tips for self-advocacy and staying safe, follow them on Twitter at Uche underscore Blackstock. That's U-C-H-E underscore B-L-A-C-K-S-T-O-C-K. And at Dr. Oni B. That's at D-R- O-N-I-B-E-E. Yes, girl. And this series is created by the Essence Podcast Network Pod Squad. Executive producer, Tiffany Ashate. Producers, Ashley J. Hobbs and Chantel Holder. Audio engineers, Josh Gwynn and Anthony Frazier. And our designer, Imani Nunez. Tune in every Tuesday for the month of May for more Black moms on the front lines. <laughs>